Good morning, everybody. It's so, so good to be here with all of you today, and it's so great to have all of your presence here with us today as we are closing out our series on the book of John. And I mean, we, we've been in this, this gospel for quite a while. I think it started the very beginning of September or something like that. And today we have finally reached the end. But as we get started with this message, I want to go all the way back to the beginning and look at the very, very first words that, that, that John put down on paper whenever he said this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This was such an intentional sentence that John wrote to open up his gospel. Because he, he was letting us know, I mean, really, he, he was using this word that was just so full of meaning to, to everyone. Because one of the things John wants to make clear is that this Jesus movement is not just a Jewish thing, and it's not just a Gentile or a Greek thing, but it is a thing for, for everybody, for, for all people. And, and so this word that he used for, for word, we, we talked about this at the beginning of the series, it's the word logos. And, and to the Jewish listener, whenever they heard this, the, what, what, what would have come to their mind is, is this spoken word of God, like the power that is contained in the spoken word of God that is able to speak something out of nothing, which is able to speak life into existence. But to the Greek or to the Gentile listener, whenever they hear the word logos, their mind would have gone in a little bit more of a philosophical direction, and, and they would have heard a word that, 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 that like embodied all of life and all of meaning and all of purpose. And so what John is doing at the very beginning of his gospel is he's saying is that in the beginning was the word, what was Jesus, who contains the power, who holds the power of the spoken word of God, but who also embodies all of life, all of meaning, and all of purpose. And for the next 21 chapters, John would continue to introduce us to Jesus. He would strategically tell us about who Jesus was and what Jesus did and what Jesus said about himself and, and other things that, that Jesus taught. He, he would tell us about the signs that he performed and all of it culminating in his death, his burial, and ultimately his resurrection. But John tells us uh, towards the end of his gospel, he said, guys, I, I'm just really scratching the surface with everything that I could have told you. And we know that's true because the other three Gospels, which are known as the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell us all kinds of stories that John doesn't even mention. But, but, but John, he, he shared what he shared for the single purpose, that he wanted you to believe. He wanted to give you all the information he believed that you would need to be able to believe. John had seen Jesus. He had walked with Jesus. He had talked with Jesus. He had watched Jesus die, and he had encountered him after his resurrection. He saw uh, that he, he knows Jesus is, is the Messiah. He knows that Jesus is the Son of the living God, and all that he wants is for you to believe the same thing. And he tells us as much in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where, where he says this. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. 
John is not trying to hide a single thing. He knows what he knows. He's seen what he's seen. He's heard what he's heard. He's experienced what he has experienced, and it has completely changed his life. And he wants it to change your life too. And so today, as we close out this series, I, I'm really going to just look at one. Everything's going to be about this one verse. We're going to go in a few different directions from this one verse. But, but I want to really just be able to learn about this one thing that Jesus said to his followers uh, after his resurrection. I want us to dig into what Jesus said and see how this impacts our lives today. So, so here's the verse that, that I want us to spend some time in. It is spoken by the resurrected Jesus. Whenever he says this, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Shortly after the resurrection, this moment that Jesus proved himself to be who he claimed to be, he looks to his disciples, he looks at his followers, and he says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And so the question is, right, there's a question that comes up here. The question is, how did the Father send him? If Jesus is sending us how the Father sent him, then how did the Father send him? And to to answer that question, I want us to look at the words of Jesus, because I think he he gives us a really good idea. The first place is in John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, Jesus says, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. In the very next chapter, in John chapter 6, verses 38 through 40, Jesus says this, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone, isn't that huge? That everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up the last day. And then in John 10, Jesus makes it so, so clear that the purpose that, that I'm trying to communicate here. In John 10, verse 30, he says, I and the Father are one. And so how did the Father send Jesus? How did the Father send the Son? The Father sent the Son to do the Father's will. And to do this, the, 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 the point of all this is, is that what Jesus did is what the Father sent him to do. And in the same way, what Jesus did is what Jesus has now, now called or sent his followers to do. And so I, I want to take just a, a few minutes here to, to look at six areas in, in our time together this morning, six areas that, that Jesus commonly acted and that Jesus is now uh, is sending his followers or commissioning his followers to do the same thing. So, so if you ever take notes, I know I'm not normally maybe a notes kind of preacher, but if, you're ever a, uh, if you are a note taker today, could be a good Sunday to write some things down because I have six areas that I want us to focus on here for a little while. The first one is this. Jesus' followers are sent to serve. Jesus' followers are sent to serve. We are sent to be agents of service and compassion. And what this looks like, it means that that we leverage what we can do for the good 
of another. And as we look at Jesus' ministry, we will see that this was not always like mass acts of goodwill. Yes, there are some of those. But so, so often it is like this, that this one person choosing this one person that, that Jesus is, is, is helping in an instant. It's not that there weren't other people around, but he is choosing to serve and show compassion to one. We see this early on in John chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana. This is the place where, where the bridegroom had, had just completely, completely underestimated the number of people who were going to be there and how long this party was really going to last. And they had run out of wine. And so to save the embarrassment of this family, Jesus goes and he, he turns all this water, six barrels of water, into the finest of wine. And then as, as Jesus continues throughout his ministry, we see that again and again, he shows great compassion and deep service on a number of occasions. The healing at the pool of, uh, at Bethesda in chapter 5. This, this man in chapter 5, we actually did a sermon on this one during this series, if you remember. Like this man had done nothing to deserve the grace and the mercy that Jesus was showing him. In fact, many commentators believe that the guy was kind of rude and, and, and was kind of just trying to put Jesus off, you know, thinking that Jesus was asking him a bunch of stupid questions. But, but still, Jesus goes and he shows Great compassion and service to this man. We see in John chapter 6, the, the feeding of 5,000 hungry people. And we know from the other gospels that he did this on another occasion with at least 4,000 hungry people. But that is an opportunity for him. It was an opportunity for him to be able to continue to teach, to be able to, for, for these people to be able to stay in his presence. But they were hungry. And so Jesus met a need, such a huge part of the service that Jesus often did was he would see a need and then he would meet that need. In John chapter 8, we see that, that Jesus saves the life of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery. In John chapter 9, we see that he heals this man who was born blind at a time whenever the, everybody, I mean the disciples and all the onlookers, they thought that, that this man's sin was the reason that, that he, he was born blind or it was his family's sin that, that, that some kind of sin had, had, had caused this to happen. Jesus proved and he showed that no, a person's pain is not proof of the absence of God, but instead a person's pain can actually be an opportunity for the glory of God to be displayed. We see that again in John chapter 11 with the death of Lazarus. Whenever Jesus would come and he would raise Lazarus, another time whenever people thought that Jesus didn't act quick enough or he didn't act swiftly enough or he, he, he didn't do enough for the first four days or so. But again, we see that pain is, is not always without a purpose, but that God can be glorified through our pain. And then in chapter 13, the, the, the beginning of this last night of Jesus' life, the night that Jesus was betrayed, the time that John spends more time on this night than anything else in his entire gospel. And he tells us that the way that Jesus began this evening, this long evening of teaching and example setting with his disciples, is by taking off his outer robe, getting a bowl of water, and going and washing his disciples' feet, doing the lowest of the low, that the job for the low, low, lowliest of servants was now being done by the Son of God. And after he finished, he looked at his disciples and he told them, I have set an example for you. Go and do likewise. And so Jesus, he was sent to serve. So therefore, we as Jesus' followers are sent to serve, to be agents of service 
and compassion. The second thing that we see is, is that Jesus' followers are sent to comfort the discouraged. Jesus' followers are sent to comfort the discouraged. And again, this is something that Jesus did on a number of occasions throughout his ministry. We, we, we see it maybe first in John chapter 4. Whenever Jesus said that he must go through Samaria, you remember this with the Samaritan woman? Like, he must go through Samaria, which just wasn't true. I'm not calling Jesus a liar, but that just wasn't a true thing. For centuries, the Jewish people had found a way around Samaria to make sure they did not have to go through Samaria. But Jesus had a divine appointment scheduled with this woman that she didn't even know, know about. This woman who had been shunned by her community, this woman who, who had been living her lives with loads of shame, this woman who was guilt-ridden and broken, and Jesus sits down with her, and he teaches her, he challenges her, he reveals who he is to her, and he invites her to follow him. Another time whenever we see this comfort from Jesus is in John chapter 6, after Jesus had fed the 5,000 people. This was probably one of the lowest points of Jesus' entire ministry. He had just found out that his cousin, the one who had prepared the way for him, John the Baptist, had been executed. And he, 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 was, he, he was broken, and all that he really wanted was to be able to get away by himself. But every time people found out where Jesus was going, they would follow whether Jesus wanted them to in that moment or not. And so after he feeds the 5,000, he sends his disciples away to the other side of, of, of the lake, to the other side of the sea. And Jesus goes up onto a mountain to spend some time by himself so that he can just pray and try and to, to try and, you know, just find out what, what's going on and, 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 and how he needs to respond. But as the disciples are going out on the sea in the middle of the night, there's this huge storm that comes up. And as the storm, as the disciples are, are, are in the, the boat and they are terrified out of their mind, Jesus comes to them walking on the water. And ultimately, he climbs into the boat. He joins them in the storm. He encourages them. And he calms the storm. In John 11, Jesus shows us kind of what it looks like for, for us today whenever we encounter people who are mourning what do we do whenever people are mourning? How do we respond whenever people are mourning? What people who are mourning need is oftentimes not a sermon. And so Jesus doesn't show up to give a sermon, but instead he shows up to listen and to comfort and love those who are mourning Lazarus' death. And then, of course, again, that last night of Jesus' life, he spent so much time comforting his disciples before his death. So as Jesus was sent to comfort the discouraged, as Jesus' followers, we too are sent to comfort the discouraged. The third thing that we have here is that Jesus' followers are sent to confront religious hypocrisy. Jesus' followers are sent to confront religious hypocrisy. John tells us that each time in, in, in his gospel, whenever he, he kind of marks Jesus' ministry for us, the way that we know that Jesus' ministry was three years was because of John's gospel, because we see that Jesus showed up for three years' worth of, of Passovers. And at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry in John chapter 2, Jesus shows up to Passover, and that's the very first time that he goes and he clears the temple. He sees what's happening in his father's house, and he goes and he just throws everybody out, and he flips over tables and, and, and just has this righteous indignation that's taking place. But each year that Jesus would show up to the Passover in Jerusalem, each year that he would show up to the temple, 
there, were always, there, there was always this confrontation that would take place between him and the religious leaders. But in addition to those situations, Jesus would often call out the religious leaders for their hypocrisy whenever they would put their man-made rules in front of the good of people. We talked about this one week, that, that whenever we put rules in front of people, we are always, always, always going down a dangerous slope. But in all, we, we see Jesus confront religious leaders in chapter 2 and chapter 5 and chapter 7 and chapter 9 and chapter 10 and in chapter 11. And that does not even uh, take into account the confrontations that took place around the event of the cross. So, as Jesus was sent to confront religious hypocrisy, so we too as Jesus followers are sent to confront religious hypocrisy. We are to challenge, listen to these next two words, okay? or I guess it's a few more, but two main words. We are to challenge with love and grace people who claim the name of Jesus but live nothing like him. People who lack the fruit that Jesus says his followers will display. Next, we we see that Jesus' followers are sent to teach Jesus. We are sent to teach his identity and why it matters. Over and over again, Jesus would teach who he was, beginning in John chapter 3. We see Jesus teaching Nicodemus, this Pharisee who was actually a seeker at this moment. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus teaching the Samaritan woman, this outsider who was broken and, and, and guilt-ridden. And, and, and then we see John, he, he gives us these seven I am statements that Jesus literally says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. In chapter 6, he teaches about who he is and why he came. In chapter 8, he does the same thing. In chapter 10, that's where he tells us that he's the good shepherd, and he tells us how deeply that he loves his sheep. And then in chapters 13 through 16, Jesus is teaching his followers, his followers about discipleship, teaching them about the importance of remaining in him, the importance of following his example and becoming more like him, the importance of the Holy Spirit, And the role that he's going to play moving forward. Jesus taught again and again and again about his identity and why it matters. And as Jesus taught, so we too have been sent to teach. Jesus' followers are sent to teach the identity of Jesus and why it matters. The next one, the the, the fifth one, is that Jesus' followers are sent to intercede. Jesus lived a life that was marked by prayer, wasn't it? He would oftentimes want to get away by himself, like in John chapter 6, to be able to pray by himself. But there were other times that he would pray with others. Then there were times, like in John chapter 11 and others, whenever, whenever he literally says, I am praying for the well-being of those or, or, or for the benefit of those who are standing around. So that way the people who are around would be able to know the relationship that he had with the Father. But then you get to John chapter 17, and I think this is so interesting. John chapter 17 is the last chapter in John's gospel before we get to the cross. This is the end of that night. Like right after John 17, Jesus is arrested and betrayed. But in John 17, we see that that, that, that Jesus, he he comes and, and, and he just begins to pray. He prays for three things in, in particular. One, he prays for the glory of God to be revealed. He prays for the, the transformation and the sanctification of his followers. 
And he prays for the unity of all those who will one day believe. And so as Jesus lived a life that was marked by prayer, so too we as Jesus' followers should live lives that are marked by prayer. We should be people who are praying for the glory of God above all, for the kingdom of God, for his kingdom to come, and for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should be people who are marked by praying for the sanctification and the transformation of us and for all the people who claim the name of Jesus. And we should be people who are marked by praying for unity. This is so huge. In a day of great division, because of the hope that we have in Jesus, we pray for unity around the person of Jesus above all else. That whenever there's nothing that we can find common ground on, we can always find common ground in him. And then lastly, he tells us, or we see that Jesus' followers are sent to remain faithful. They are sent to remain faithful. And this is the story of the cross. This is the story of the cross. Jesus, this one who had done so much for so many, he is now betrayed. He's abandoned by all, like all of his disciples desert him. He's been falsely accused. He's suffering. The people that he has served, the people that he has taught, possibly even the people that he has fed and loved, they have turned their backs on him. But he did not quit. And we are sent to hold firm to our convictions and our beliefs that because of what Jesus did, we are to remain faithful when it's easy and when it's not, when it's comfortable and when it's not. But if I may, real quick, I know I said that there were six, but I, I do have one more that I, 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 I want to share because I think that this one is really, really important. So the bonus one is this. Jesus' followers know that the resurrection changes everything. Jesus' followers know that the resurrection changes everything. We see this in the disciples. You remember after Jesus was crucified, after he, he was dead, the, the very first thing that the disciples did is they ran back to that upper room and they locked the doors for fear of all the Jewish leaders. They were terrified. They were scared out of their mind. And so they just went and hid. But then after Jesus resurrected from the dead, after he appears to them, there is like this sudden change that takes place in the disciples to where no longer are they afraid, no longer are they scared, no longer are they running for their lives. But instead, now in this moment, they are the boldest of the bold. Some of the boldest evangelists to ever step foot on this planet are the people who were scared out of their mind, and then they encountered the resurrection, resurrected Jesus, and it changed everything. They went from hiding behind locked doors to going and looking at the people who were yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and saying, it's your fault that he's gone calling them on their sin, calling them on, on, on the things that they had done, on the ways that they had abandoned Jesus, and saying that, that Jesus, he has come for you, and, 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 and all you need to do is you need to repent, and you need to be baptized. I know you think you're so good. I know you think you're so smart. I know you think you were doing what was right, but you were wrong. But now, because of the resurrection, it has changed everything. 
And for us, it has changed our outlook. It has changed our actions. It, is, it means that, that we will never face a single moment in our entire lives whenever we don't have hope. It has given us meaning. It has given us purpose. But as we close out right now, I want to look at the very end of John's gospel. Because we remember the story of Peter, right? I know I'm kind of jumping around a little bit here, but we remember the story of Peter heading into the, the, the crucifixion. Jesus is there with Peter, and, and, and he tells Peter, hey, before the rooster crows, you will deny me. You guys remember? Three times. Three, three if you remember. That's perfect. It's biblical. So, you know, you, you, will, you, you, you will deny me three times. And then he did. Jesus had warned him. He had told him that what to look out for. Yet Peter, he still slipped and he fell. And in John 21, Jesus is resurrected, but Peter's guilt remains and it makes sense. He has messed up. He has messed up bad. He's failed. And so one night, Peter and a few of the other disciples, they, they go out fishing with some of the other disciples and and these are proud men. I mean, these were professional fishermen. This is what they did for a living. They were good at this. I go fishing, and I never catch anything. Like, I, but, 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 but Peter actually knew what he was doing here. The disciples, they knew what they were doing. But whatever, for whatever reason, that night, they didn't catch anything. Then in the early morning hours, as the sun is just beginning to rise, Jesus goes, and he stands on the shore, on the beach, and he looks out at these fishermen in the boat, Hey, you guys caught anything? And you know, they're like, oh, I, I, I you know, I, this guy. No, <laughs> we haven't. Thanks for asking. Okay, why don't you throw your net on the other side of the boat? Whatever. So they take their net and they throw it to the other side and they catch. 153 large fish. And the disciples, they realize that it's Jesus. And, and one of them says, it, that's Jesus. And, and, and so Peter, he jumps out of the boat. He, he, he ties his, his robe around him and he begins to run slash swim through the lake all the way to the shore as fast as he can. And he goes and he stands around this charcoal fire, which would have brought back so many memories of Peter's darkest moment and moment of greatest failure. And he looked Jesus in the eye, and Jesus looked him in the eye, and he said, Peter, do you love me? Ah, oh, Jesus, I love you like a brother. Feed my sheep. Stokes the fire for a second. Hey, Peter, do you love me? Oh, Jesus, man, I love you like a brother. Okay, go tend to my lambs. Hey, Peter, do you love me like a brother? And Peter was hurt. Jesus, you know. You know I love you like a brother. feed my sheep. But don't miss this. 
because Peter had failed. Yet Jesus sought out Peter in spite of his failure. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been warned that you were about to mess up and then you still did it? You still slipped up and you, you still fell? Well, it's in this place, it's in this moment that Jesus shows up again and again and again and again. And I want you to hear the two words that Jesus says to Peter right here. In John chapter 21, verse 19, he says, follow me. The exact same words that he said to Peter in the very beginning whenever he first followed. And so to me, to you, to us, regardless of where we find ourselves today, whether we've followed for many years, whether we have failed to follow, or whether we've never followed, Jesus' message to us is all the exact same. Follow me. Follow me by serving as I have served. Follow me by comforting as I have shown comfort. Follow me by confronting those who are misrepresenting me, by, by teaching who I am and, and why it matters. Follow me by, by interceding and pleading for the glory of God, for the sanctification and for the transformation of all those who claim to follow Jesus. And for the unity of God's people who may disagree on any number of issues but are united in the person of Jesus Christ. Follow me by remaining faithful no matter what comes your way. When you are abandoned or when you are wrongly accused or when you're just facing a hard time, follow Jesus. Follow his example. And do this with great hope. Because of the hope that we have that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really changes everything. The very first name that was given to this group of Jesus followers whenever the church was beginning, it wasn't Christians. We weren't always called Christians. The term Christian didn't really even come around until the first century to describe like Jesus followers. But the very first term that was used was the term the way. Isn't that cool? The way. And I love that so much because it completely represents who we are to be. We are to be people who are in the way of Jesus, who walk in the way of Jesus, who live in the way of the example of Jesus. And the reason that this is so important it's because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This week I, I read this quote and it says that the need for Jesus is screaming off every story and every newspaper article in the world today. So John, he just wants you to know who Jesus is. He wants you to know what he's seen and what he's heard and what he's experienced and why he believes and that why he believes should be good enough for you to believe and that you have been called, you have been sent to become more like 
Jesus. So that we can be sent to, into the world to serve, to comfort, to confront, to teach, to pray, to remain faithful, and to live with an unshakable hope because of his resurrection. Because in the end, Jesus is the hope of the entire world. And as the Father has sent Jesus, now Jesus has sent his followers into a world that is desperate for him. Will you pray with me this morning? Jesus, I thank you for the hope that we have in you. Jesus, I pray right now for everybody in this room, and I don't know what's going on in all of our hearts today. But God, I pray that those two words that you spoke to Peter at the very beginning, at the very end, will will haunt us. Follow me. And Jesus, may we follow you in the way of you, becoming more like you every day and in every possible way. And the way we think and the way we act and talk and live, Jesus, may it all be in the way of you. So Father, I love you. I am so thankful for this gospel and this story that John gives us to tell us about who you are. So Jesus, may you light a fire in us that expands far beyond this building and reaches the world around us. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.